because you know when you do those projects, you never think that you uh, you never think that you about the impact or what will bring to the people. You do it because you believe that there is a power into art that will make a change, you know, and you hope for it. And then sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens at a different level, you know. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's always good to see uh, to see this. I mean, to see like how people react and uh, and the joy of and happiness that maybe something like that could bring to them. Hello and welcome to the season two finale of the Artpsist podcast, a series by Bosler Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world here to share their stories with you, the listener. My name's Georgia, and in this episode, we speak to the amazing artist El Cid. El Cid uses Arabic calligraphy and a distinctive style to spread messages of peace, unity, and to underline the commonalities of the human existence. His artwork can be found all over the world and consistently aims at unifying communities and readdressing stereotypes. I was lucky enough to chat to El Cid while he was on site working on a new project and for that reason the audio in this episode can be a bit distorted at points but stay with it because it's a fantastic episode we talk about loads of different things from his upbringing his introduction to art and also some of his major projects all aimed at challenging perspectives and raising awareness about different communities and their contexts hope you enjoy Elsie, welcome to the Arpsis podcast. It's so fantastic to have you. Can you tell us a bit about your early life, where you grew up and what life was like? I was born and raised in Paris from the Tunisian parents, you know, so a family of six, four kids, two older brothers and one younger sister mm-hmm. living on the suburb of Paris. My dad was a uh, working um, as a factory worker for Renault, the car brand, and my mom was a uh, was a nanny at home. She mm-hmm. used to take care of kids of others, but in our house. Okay. So simple life, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, low social class, I would say, but uh, high uh, happiness. <laughs> yeah. And what was your introduction to art? Uh, honestly, you know, since I'm a kid, I uh, I love to draw, I love to paint, you know, but the, I think the first memory of me painting something, mm. I think, was... Uh, I don't know. I cannot put it chronologically, but I know there is a there is like two events that I see myself painting. One was uh, my mom. She was a. I mean, we used to have a neighbor that um, her mom used to go to work at seven thirty, mm-hmm. and uh, we used to go. School started at eight thirty in our neighborhood, mm-hmm. so she used to drop this kid in our house. He was one year older, than, uh, younger than me, and one day he told me, "Can you draw this for me?" And he has this double page of one book called Ratus, and I was, and I was like, I don't know. For me, I felt like I was painting, drawing this double page uh, for for months, but I'm sure like it took me maybe two or three days. Yeah. So I have this memory of me painting for the first time, mm. but I have like picture of me like at four or five years old painting, in the, you know, that my teacher took when I was a kid. So I think uh, art was always there, I guess. Yeah. And did you did you go on to study art? You know, at when you were in as a teenager or after school? No, no, I never. No. I didn't study art. Um, I I study business, so I'm, oh. I have a master degree in, uh, in in supply chain management. I used to be a business consultant. I work in New York and Montreal, and uh, 
Oh, wow. I gave up on my job uh, uh, 13 years ago. You okay. know, actually at the at the birth at the birth of my daughter, mm. I quit my job the day before she was born. No way! Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. And, uh, but I took a three. Yeah, thank you. I took three water watercolor classes. Okay. I remember, like, I asked asked my dad to uh, to take some water, some some art classes, and this woman she uh, she used to. Uh, I mean, the class was two hours and used to. Uh, Cost 50, uh, 15, uh, no, uh, 100 francs, which is 15 euro today. Mm-hmm. And after three classes, my dad was like, Did you learn anything? I was like, Yes, I learned. So he's like, Okay, halas, done. <laughs> so now, uh, so that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and what was it about, you know, yeah. that your daughter about to be born that made you just decide that you had to change your, your career completely? You know, I, I, I believe that, you know, society made us feel that, you know, we need this security. Mm. being secured by somebody else you know uh, by somebody else i mean a company a job you know and um uh, and i feel you know like uh i was i was working you know i was doing my art on the side you know and uh so i used to do like a, a nine to nine to five job which mm. was as a consultant you work more than this but mm-hmm. uh painting at night painting the weekend so always uh you know always uh always painting always creating mm. and uh and when my daughter was born you know i was like i don't want to how can i say that i don't want to see her only when she wake up in the morning and sleep at night you know so mm-hmm. i really wanted to spend as much time as i could with her mm-hmm. so i was like you know what let me uh let me take this this opportunity as a break for myself so uh that's why i decided to to quit so i was 100 percent with my daughter and 100 uh, percent with my work you know as an artist so i uh i start like you know Actually, I was I was one hundred percent in everything, you know, because yeah. I, I I love them both. I love my daughter. And I love what I do. So it was, it was easier to be focused on something that you love. Yeah, absolutely, I completely agree with that. Um, that's that's incredible to be honest. I'm very brave as well. I think, you know, it, taking that decision. I don't I, I don't think it's brave honestly. It's, uh, you know, that's what I think. I think we've been conditioned like, okay, if I get fired tomorrow for my job, what will I do? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like people, they lose their job, they kill themselves. I found that sad, you know, because you lose actually the value and the power that you have in yourself. And, uh, yeah. and for me, this is what I, I think I encourage anybody that think, you know, that they can do something for themselves, you know, that they have a passion and they know they can make money out of it to, to just jump for it. Yeah. And it was art. Some people have a friend of mine is, is into perfume. So he's, he's, I mean, he's about to give up his job as a sales guy just to focus into perfume. Yeah. So I think when you have a passion, I think you know, you need to find a way to make it work and there's so many ways to make it work yeah absolutely absolutely and so you you began did you always start like when you started art did you begin using calligraphy as your main as the main focus of your work or how did that come about no calligraphy came later mm. you know it was uh it started as a as a quest of identity you know like born and raised in france i was always uh told that i was not french and when i used to go to tunisia in the summer People just tell us, uh, like, you're not Tunisian. Uh, we mm. always had this, uh, do you prefer France or Tunisia? So people made you feel that you have to make a choice. Yeah. And uh, and indeed, at this time, I made a choice. You know, I made a choice of uh, of choosing Tunisia, you mm. know, because I was looking more as a Arab guy than a French guy. And, and that's why I decided to learn, to learn Arabic, how to read and write. And I was doing graffiti at this time, so... 
uh, when I discovered calligraphy, which was later on, I was like, wow, this is insane. Yeah. And I couldn't find a teacher in France to teach me calligraphy. So I just started doing my own stuff, not knowing that there were rules in Arabic calligraphy. Uh, you know, there's so many rules that you need to respect to call yourself a calligrapher. So because I never learned any of those rules, I don't call myself calligrapher. Okay. That's yeah. so interesting. So, so you still don't call yourself a calligrapher? No, no. I call myself an artist. Mm. I, you know, people always try to put me in the box, you know, like... Uh, calligraphy and graffiti and street art and blah 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 and yeah you know i do what i want today mm. i work with spray paint like right now i'm working with spray paint and paint mm. last week i was working with wood like a year i was working with glass you know so i don't think you should put yourself limits yeah no i totally agree and how do you choose the passages or quotes that you feature in your street art because i mean in your uh in your work because they, it seems from what I know about your work that it's all very specific to the context with which you're working. So how do you go through the process of choosing yeah. what you write? I mean, I think there's a long research that people don't see, uh, mm. which is uh, which is documentation, reading books, finding uh, finding people from the place, you know, so there is a lot of, uh, there's a scouting first, mm. and then there's a lot of research. Thank, thank God today we have something called the internet that allows yeah. us to find books and text yeah. from every single community and, and culture. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's that's amazing. True. So that's how, for me, it's important to, uh, to make sure that what I'm writing is, uh, is relevant to the people. Yeah. You know, to the place where I'm painting, relevant to uh, the subject that I want to talk about. Mm. Yeah, so no, absolutely. All this. Yeah. And what, yeah. what I love about your work is, it's kind of or what I've read about your work is your belief in democratizing the arts, um, which makes it so powerful when it's in a public space. You know, it's for everyone to see, everyone to enjoy, everyone to react to and connect with. I was wondering if you say that you started, you know, you quit your job, your other job 13 years ago. And you talk a bit yeah. about your you know, this kind of relationship between your identity, between, you know, growing up in France and being Tunisian. I was wondering if the revolution in Tunisia had an impact on your work and how you kind of used it, you know, as a way of bringing together. I know you worked a lot in Tunisia, how you kind of used art as a way of uniting people in that sense. You know, before you, before answering this question and your question, there was something, yeah. Interesting. You know, um, calligraphy allowed me at I'm at a later stage to reunite my two identities, the French and the Tunisian one, breaking mm. this kind of cycle of wondering where you're from and what you are. So I today I don't define myself, you know, by my uh, uh, geographical origin. Yeah. I would say I define myself more by my historical origin. Mm. You know, so when people ask me where you're originally from, I say like historically I'm from Tunisia. Yeah, you know, France, and I think I wouldn't. My dad would never would have never gone to France if, um, if you know there was not the colonization of I mean the protectorate of Tunisia by the French people. Yeah, if there was not the Second World War and France needed some workers, my dad would never have gone there. So I think we're the product of history, not just product of geography. You know what I yeah. mean? I yeah. think, uh, and that's why today, like this identity crisis that I faced like uh, twenty years ago, is not there anymore. You know, so. That's why I don't define myself. Even when people say, like, as a French Tunisian artist, what do you think? I'm like, you know, it's not this who define my thought. Mm. You know, it's not my origin that define my thought. It's beyond that. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah. 
Yeah. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. And the question I forgot. About, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the the main question was. It was it was about kind of well, your being being in Tunisia hmm. during the yeah the revolution, revolution. Yeah. yeah yeah. Look, um, you know I was super careful about it mm. because people died during the revolution yes. and, and for me it was it was dangerous to uh, dangerous like, I was intellectually. Mm. To go and just uh, create artwork, just to bring light on me. Yeah. So I didn't. Uh, I I waited a year before I uh, before I went to Tunisia to do anything. You know, okay. and uh, it was important for me that I have the people involved. You know, mm. I mean, you cannot have a, an opinion on anything. You know, like in, when everything is fresh. For example, for me, it's funny when you um, there's a, something that's happening in the news and people like straight away have they know everything about it, you know, like yeah. it's important to know like the in and the out of every situation. Mm, absolutely. So, but I, you know, like uh, I, I, I did some project, three projects after the Tunisian revolution, actually in the two years after the revolution, mm. but I was not somebody who would be like, yes, you know, I'm doing something for the revolution. I think I had like yeah. a, a different approach, you know, mm-hmm. I was looking at the, uh, at the event as something that would regenerate, you know. I was looking at the positivity in it, you know, like checking how how this movement will create something new for the country, mm. you know. And uh, and I tried to go toward this thing. That's why I did the minaret in my town of Gabez. That's why I did the project, the Last Walls. Yeah. That's why I did this first project in Cairo in 2011. Mm. You know, so it's, uh, yeah, there's uh, many layers to it. Yeah. And your minaret that you did in your hometown in uh, Tunisia is so beautiful. Gabbis, yeah. yeah. What was the what was the reaction of the people in that in the town when you made it? Yeah, I think people were happy and proud, you know, because uh, when we did it, we never thought that this will have so much exposure. You mm. know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and then it was like you bring a city, a town, some people back to the map. Mm. You know, and so they look at it as like, wow, like an art piece has made so much impact. When I say impact, I'm not talking about economic, it's just like the proud, the pride that you bring to people. Yeah. You know, like one of my cousins, like she, she came to me and she's like, you know, like you, you brought our head up, you know, so I was like, mm. wow, you know, like, uh, and I'm like, yes, of course, because the piece is high, so you have to bring your head up. And yeah. like she was laughing, you know, <laughs> but I took it as a, I took it as a, it was, it was really touching, you know, to hear this. Because you know when you do those projects, you never think that you uh, you never think that you about the impact or what will bring to the people. You do it because you believe that there is a power into art that will make a change, you know, and yeah. you hope for it. Yeah. And then sometimes it happens. Sometimes it happens at a different level, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's always good to see uh, to see this. I mean, to see like how people react and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the joy of and happiness that maybe something like that could bring to them. Hi, I'm Hussam Fazula, co-founder of Bosla Arts. Did you know we also have a magazine featuring seven artists from different parts of the world who are using their work to stand up to some of the most oppressive regimes? As a listener to the Art Process podcast, you can get 15% using the code T-A-P-P. That's all in capital T A P P. Now back to the podcast. It, it kind of makes me think as well about my favorite work of yours, which is 
called Perception um, in Cairo, where you made an immense work across a whole neighborhood in Cairo, a Coptic neighborhood. And it's it's just a, it's obviously outstandingly beautiful and just a triumph in terms of technical achievements. I don't know how you did it, but it's also a lot about kind of changing the way that people look or perceive things. Can you just tell us a little bit about the project? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I wanted to to speak about perception. I think that all of us, you know, as human beings, at some point, we have been judged for the wrong thing you know like we uh sometimes you're too big too short too skinny too fat mm. you're too you know you don't fit you know what i mean yeah so and, and you know and people they would judge based on their on their own paradigm i would say and uh and i wanted to speak about that you know i wanted mm. to raise the topic of perception and how sometimes us as um a society we uh Unconsciously, you know, uh, you know, have so many stereotypes mm. uh, on community that we don't know, and uh, and about this community of garbage collector in Cairo called called the Zarai people. They call them the Zabalin, but their name is Zarai. Mm. Uh, that uh, that have been collecting the garbage of Cairo for for decades, and you know, like uh, they have developed the most powerful recycling recycling system in the world. Yeah. But despite of that, you know, they've been segregated, marginalized, and judged as poor and dirty just because they deal with the trash. But mm. what is ironic is the trash and this garbage is not um, is not theirs, it's coming from the city. You know, yeah. so they, they call themselves in the neighborhood the cleaners. They say we are the cleaners, the garbage people are the people of the city. Yeah. You know, and uh, and they you know, like uh, they recycle eighty percent of what they collect, you know. Yeah. When the city such as London, I think when we did the project he was saying that uh, London recycle like 17% of what they collect. I can so there is that. a huge gap. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. It is. So that's, that's, that's what amazing. And so I was like, you know what? I would have to create an art piece that, uh, that will reflect this idea of perception. And sometimes you need to uh, switch your angle to see the people from the right, uh, you know, from, to see the right image of somebody. And yeah. so that's why I created this anamorphic piece. You know that uh, that span over like more than fifty uh, facade, mm. and there is only one vantage point that you need to stand in front of, so you can see the full piece mm. as it's supposed to be. When you're like two meters on the left, on the right, or like one floor up or one floor high, uh, you don't see the work as it's supposed to be. So um, that was the idea, and then we we did this project with my team, and then uh, it uh, it was amazing. You know, it was uh, beyond the artistic challenge. Yeah. It was the um, the human experience that we lived and the relation that we created with these people. Yeah. And so it's been like now seven years and I'm still in touch with them. You know, like we always speak and we visited them with the team like three, two or uh, three months ago. Oh, know? really? So, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm always with them. Like it's, uh, it's like family. That's so nice. And that's another thing that I really love about your your work and the way that you talk about your work is that it's always this sense of a collaboration and working not just as a team with your own team, but also with the people, the place, the context. When you how do you go through like planning something like as huge as perception? How do you how long does it take just to kind of how long did it take to do the whole project from start to finish and kind of what were the challenges of working, you know, having to collaborate with so many different people, so many different technical issues, I can imagine. What was it like? 
it's uh, it was a year. It took us a year to 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 plan and uh, a month to execute. Mm. You know, but you know there is a lot of diplomacy actually. You know, like you you have to negotiate. You know, when you play on, on fifty facade, you have to speak with every owner. Yeah. You know, and uh, and so you know it's a close community. So me, uh, um, you know, I was going to knock at everybody's house, and then someone told me like you just need to convince the priest. Mm. So I had to deal with a, you know, like a religious ent- entity and speak yeah. with him and explain to him that I wanted to do an art project and and people sometimes they're like, why you want to do this? And they're like, because I want to. And then like, who's gonna pay for it? And then he and then he's like, I'm gonna pay for it. And he's like, why? He's like, just because I want to do it. You know. And this is difficult. You know, art there is there is no rationality in art. So you yeah. you do it because you you want to do it. Yeah. You know, and and that's uh, I I wanted to do it and uh, and yeah and I paid for it you know but um, that's the uh, that's how I do my stuff you know like I as an artist today I, I you know I sell artwork I do gallery show I do commission and then part of uh, part of this money like uh, that I earn then go to project that I finance myself so yeah. I keep this kind of freedom mm-hmm. you know so that's how I look at it yeah. No, it's it's so important, and also, yeah, it's just it's a really great way of sustaining yourself as well. You know, just you know, yeah. selling what you have to sell and and putting it all back into it. And it's, I don't know, yeah, it's it's hard in the arts here because in England, just because they there's such a divide between kind of you know getting grants and funds for things, and then also the commercial side. Um, so it's fantastic just yeah. to, to see how it all fits in together. I mean, the grant system sometimes is so complicated, you know, you're getting grants and filing so many paper and stuff. I'm like, you know, let's do it our own way, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's more complicated and it's more difficult. I'm not saying it's easy because, you know, when I say that to people, people are like, oh, I, oh the guy, mm. oh, that's easy for him. No, it's not easy. You know, we, if, as every artist, you know, there's up and down. So yeah. sometimes we struggle, sometimes it's more, it's more chill, you know, but mm. uh, yeah, it's... Uh, we have the same process, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And what what was the reaction to perception from the rest of Egypt? You know, from other neighborhoods in Cairo that had this kind of negative perception of that community. Was it well received? Yeah, it was celebrated. Mm. I mean, they never see so many people coming to the neighborhood. Yeah, you know, like a, the vantage point from where you look at the artwork is uh, is close to the church. You know, yeah. and uh, you have to go on the rooftop and. Uh, under the rooftop, there's an apartment that's uh, where there is one of the priests. He lives there. Mm. And uh, after the project, there's so many people going on this rooftop to check the thing. Mm. So then he put a door and he closed the access to the to the rooftop because he was bothered by people coming. You know, yeah. There were so many people. and I mean, he just went everywhere. And mm. some people thought he was not real. He was just a Photoshop, but he was, he was definitely real. So yeah. we, we did it and it was fun. But... Uh, it's uh, like I said, it's the perception of people from outside toward this community, but also the perception of the community toward the people outside. Mm. You know, because when you when you marginalize, you know, you're always suspicious about people new, new people, yeah. people coming in and stuff. So, so you look at the world differently. Mm. Mm. No, definitely, and it's it's so amazing. And I wanted to ask you, I guess it kind of follows on to this next question I have, which is about the, the kind of impermanent nature of you know graffiti and street art and you know how 
how does it feel you know you once you finish a project like that which is so immense and so huge and then over time things change you know people maybe paint over it or you know draw on it or you know a building gets built in front of it how, how do you feel about that the kind of how do you deal with the change basically of of graffiti and the nature of it I think uh, when you're in the public space, you know, art is ephemeral by itself, so it means that it's made to disappear. You yeah. know, like you cannot control it. You don't have the control uh, over it. And mm. for me, it's not about the artwork. It's about the, it's about the moment, you know, the human experience that you live with the people. That's why for me, it's important to to meet people when I create artwork and not just come and, and do my thing and leave. It's not a performance. You know, yeah. it's not a design. It's not decoration. It's really... It's really uh, this community link that you create with the people. And, yeah. that's, uh, and that's why, you know, like when the artwork leaves, when it disappears, it's fine. Mm. Have the picture, we immortalize it, you know, but have like the moment, the moment and the memories are still there. Yeah. So that's why, um, that's yeah. why I, 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 today I detached myself totally from the artwork. Really? You know, yeah. I, I mean, I painted, it can be, it can be a, if it's erased the next day, I don't mind. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I had so many works like that. So, yeah. yeah. That's incredible. It must, did that take time to kind of develop this sense of detachment once you finished? Yeah, of, of, uh, of course. Of yeah. course. You know, like, of course, because back in the days when you, you know, when you used to graffiti, you paint in the street, somebody comes and paint over you and then you, some beef, you know, some clash with those guys. So, mm. you know, like, and then you learn, like, I don't, I don't want the streets. You know, like, I, w- I will be mad. I will fight with somebody if when I'm painting, the person come and try to, to damage the artwork. But mm. when, as soon as I'm done and I took the picture, I'm like, guys, this is yours. You can pee on it. You can <laughs> keep it, preserve it, prime it, do whatever you want. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's yours. It's not mine anymore. Yeah. That's a great attitude as well and way of thinking about it. And I think that's also what, what makes it so amazing. Like, it's that sense of an artwork yeah, that's uh, always changing. Yeah, there's a French writer called Eugène Ionesco. He said, only the ephemeral last, you know, mm. and, uh, and I always think of this quote and I'm like, last in the memories, you know, mm. if there's something that's always on your face, then you won't see it. I yeah. mean, at some point you just lose, you know, like, let's say like in front of your house, imagine there is a, I don't know, there is a tree. Mm. Okay. So you will never notice it. The day they would cut the tree, you'll say like, damn. <laughs> There used to be a tree here, and you <laughs> yeah. always remember the tree, but because it's here, like you don't see it, yeah, you know, yeah. So that's how I look at it. That's very well put. <laughs> um, my kind of final question, Elsie, because you've given me so much of your time already, is um, my pleasure. So, Bosla Arts is, as I mentioned before, I think, is about um, it's also about looking at <laughs> you know what the troubles that artists face today, the difficulties, and the risk. And I was wondering, just from your experience, you know, probably working with lots of different kinds of people all around the world, what do you think are some of the like challenges of of being an artist, or the greatest challenges for artists today? I think the self value. Mm. I think that as artists, we have a tendency to underestimate our power and what we do. I'll just mm. give you a small example. You look, you look at the art world. You know, like you take collectors, museum, curator, gallery, uh, art fair, anything you can have. Mm. You know, all this, all this, like, microcosm, this world, uh, 
like navigate i would say like uh, around the artist you know yeah the artist create the value you mm-hmm. know what i mean but uh, sometimes the value the artist doesn't gain any value yeah you know what i mean mm-hmm. so if if there's no artist there's no collector there's no galleries there's nobody yeah you know there's no art art supply stores you know and yeah. uh, and we uh, and we we have a tendency to forget this we have the tendency that we actually have the power to make the stuff change you know and sometimes i feel like people like uh, they work with other people but uh, as you know they were doing them a favor mm. you do a favor to somebody when you work with them you know what i mean yeah you know you giving your spirit your soul your creativity you're giving it to people you know yeah. so it's important that we have our you know like we we raise we raise our self value yeah this is the most important thing i guess yeah definitely thank you thank you for saying that um and as my final question Elsie i just wanted to know Pleasure. what what you're working on next Oof, uh, a lot of stuff but i never <laughs> say what i i never speak about what i didn't do you know, okay. uh, yeah is a way for me uh you know some people say like this is superstition you know like but uh, it's more uh, not about this it's about i i believe you know like uh, the more you speak about something mm. that you didn't do the more you believe your brain believe that you did it mm. you know what i mean yeah and then it, the most difficult it become for you to make it and achieve it okay. so don't speak do stuff and then let the, the and then let speak it themselves for themselves okay. Yeah, all right <laughs> well i look forward to seeing it then when yeah. it's done whatever it is okay <laughs> all right well thank you so much this has been fantastic and it's um it's such a treat to speak to you we'd like to thank elseed for joining us for this week's episode of the art Possessed podcast and to you the listener for sticking by us for season two if you've enjoyed this episode and the season don't forget to rate follow and share online Only with your help can these important stories be heard. Thanks so much and we'll be back soon with season three of the Art Persist podcast.